to God for. Uh, certainly we understand every good gift comes down from the Father of Lights, and we're thankful to have this another year as we begin uh, this, this week. We're thankful for those who are visiting. Uh, we want you to be uh, back as often as you're able. You are a welcome guest, and certainly we want to spend time getting to know you before you head out this morning, if that's possible, if you'll give us that opportunity in that time. It's also a blessing to have all the members here. I know that some, uh, many are still traveling. I know that many of our college students are still out, and so we certainly want to continue to remember them in our, our prayers as they are away from us. If you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, there is a man spoken of, a king spoken of in Acts chapter 12, <clears throat> the name of which we are probably all familiar with in verse 1. It says, Now about that time Herod the king, now this is to be understood as Herod Agrippa I, uh, because we are under the time period of Claudius Caesar. This is the son of Herod the Great, which was the Herod under which Jesus was born under. I want you to know in Acts 12 the description of this man, this particular King Herod, and the type of man he was. Beginning in verse 2, he killed James the brother of John with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. You have a man who was clearly very political. He did that which pleased the masses. He was also a man who was willing to murder. This is a wicked man. And in fact, as you go further in Acts chapter 12 and you get down to verse 21, just how wicked he was is revealed in verse 21. And upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because, not because the people had said that, he can't control that, but because he gave not God the glory. In other words, he didn't deny it. So God smote him, and he dies because they exalted him as a God, and he did not deny it, while instead giving God the glory. This was the type of man Herod Agrippa I was. He was a murderer, he was very political, he did that which pleased the masses, and he was blasphemous. He accepted the description and the name that was deserving of Jehovah God. Go meet Acts chapter 26 now. Acts chapter 26. In Acts 26 in verse 1, when we read of Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, this is to be understood as his son. The one we just looked at in Acts 12, when by the time we arrive in Acts 26, you now have the son of that man being described. And so in Acts 26 and verse, uh, verse 2, look in Acts 26 and verse 2. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I, thus Paul, shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee, King Agrippa, to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews, wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. What Paul begins to do here in Acts 26 is give his defense. He begins by describing himself and, and his past. This is the way, I, uh, the way I was in the past. This is what I did in the past. This is how I am now and what I do now. And so he goes through basically his own life, an account of his own life, many of uh, things of which um, he, uh, Paul acknowledges that Agrippa would be aware of. Go down with me now to verse 22. So he concludes this, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great. Interestingly enough, this is one of the greats he would be, in fact, witnessing to at this very moment. But he says, I've witnessed to small and great. He's one of the greats, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did should come, that Christ should suffer, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and that should show light unto the Gentiles, uh, a, a light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And so he is, is witnessing to the king, to King Agrippa, to Herod, saying, 
uh, this, this life that I've gone through, I've arrived now at the point which I not only believe that Jesus was the, the son of the God who died and rose again, but also I'm going about and witnessing that to everyone I come in contact with, great and small. I'm, I'm witnessing to that, those, those events. In verse 24, as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, you'll note Festus' response to this, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. That is not out of the question because there are a lot of people, some of which I know who may, were made mad by too much learning. But the, the idea here is not too much learning about God. That doesn't make you mad. Too much learning about other things can make you mad. But his response is, Paul, what you're saying is crazy. That's crazy. I do not accept what you're saying. That's Festus' response. I want you to go a little bit further in this context down to verse 27 and look at Herod's response, King Agrippa's response. For the king knoweth of these things before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. It was not done privately. It's public, and you know about it, Herod. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now this verse, there's a lot contained in this verse in verse 28. One of the greatest, I think, things that are contained in this verse is the evidence that God wants all men to be saved. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, 2 Peter 3 verse 9. What I mean by that is, his father was this wicked, blasphemous, evil murderer, and God, in fact, struck him and he died. That's the type of man he was. But God did not extend that to his son. Instead, he arranged to where his son could meet Paul. And Paul could tell him about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's who God is. God does not hold his, his works at the account of his father's works. He provided the opportunity for this man to come in contact with Paul. But verse 28 is also a very sad verse. Because what you have here is one of the greatest missed opportunities in all the Bible. And it appears that he was so close. And I think that's what makes it so much harder to accept. He was so close to becoming a Christian. The son of that wicked man we just read about. God gave him an opportunity. He was so close but this is one of the greatest missed opportunities in all Scripture. What you have here is an example of the missed opportunity of a non-Christian. You can find those throughout Scripture, those who are not children of God, those who are not in the New Testament Christians, who had an opportunity to become one, but they missed that opportunity at various varying degrees of how close they were. Sometimes they were pretty far away. Sometimes they were very close, but they had a missed opportunity. There are also examples in Scripture that not all missed opportunities are those of non-children. Not all missed opportunities are, in fact, non-Christians. Go to the, the book of Mark, and we're going to spend a lot of time in Mark chapter 14 this morning, so if you want to mark this chapter, Mark, the book of John, Mark. Mark chapter 14, because we'll be back, uh, back and forth here. But I want to note some things in Mark 14, considering missed opportunities. In Mark 14, beginning in verse 1. Mark 14, beginning in verse 1. After two days with the feast of the Passover and of eleven bread, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him, Jesus, by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. It's interesting because already, already in the first two verses, you have them looking for an opportunity to crucify Jesus. They were looking for that opportunity to kill him, to crucify him. And they were looking for the best opportunity because they said right now is not the best time. But they were looking for that opportunity to crucify Jesus. In Mark 14 and verse 3, go down to verse 3. 
And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, Jesus, there came a woman, we're going to find out in the book of John, this is Mary, having an alabaster book, a box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that uh, with indig had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? Now when all, again, when we get to John, he's going to describe this as Judas Iscariot. Judas was not himself by himself in this way of thinking. In fact, Matthew says disciples. This one says they. There are more than just Judas who had this thought, who had the notion of that was a waste. But uh, you see in verse 4 that there's some who spoke out and said this was a waste. In other words, in verse 5, it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor, and they murmured against her. What they are identifying here is they are identifying this from their perspective as a missed opportunity they thought that what she did was a missed opportunity to help someone who was poor that's their conclusion they viewed it as a missed opportunity to help someone who isn't poor now jesus is going to describe the fact in his response that was not the case but they viewed it as a missed opportunity look in verse six at jesus response go to verse six and jesus said let her alone why trouble ye her she hath wrought a good work on me for ye have the poor with you always and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. That is, the opportunity is not going to always be here for me. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. There's a lot, again, in these verses. I want you to note in verse 7, he points out the fact that as far as an opportunity to help those who are in need, they're always going to be there. You're always going to have an opportunity to help someone in need because the poor are always going to be there so he's like he's comparing it to if it's a matter of opportunity there were two opportunities here you could have helped the poor but you also as you're going to see in a moment could have used this opportunity to serve the christ he says as far as opportunities to help the poor you'll always have those you will not always have the the, the ability and opportunity to serve the christ because i'm not going to be here much longer he points out the idea of opportunity. He also points out in verse 7 the, the desire. He says, whensoever ye will, there has to be the opportunity, there has to be the ability to help the poor, and there also has to be the desire to help the poor. And he says, those all being present, there will be opportunities for that in verse 7. But this was not it. I also love in verse 8 that by anointing him for his burial, she was acknowledging that he was going to die. That's, I know that seems like a small thing, but many of his disciples were not willing to acknowledge that yet. In fact, in Matthew 16, that's the very thing that Jesus says to Peter to get behind me, Satan, because Peter says, you're not going to die. Jesus just says, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised again on the third day. And Peter says, it's not going to happen. Mary, by anointing him for his burial, is acknowledging if he says he's going to die, then he's going to die. That's a huge step of her doing that. I want to go to John's account, John chapter 12. I want to add some information to this. John chapter 12. We will further find out what she was doing. In John chapter 12, go down with me to verse 3. John 12 and verse 3. Then took Mary. So now we have the identity of Mary. This is Mary the mother, uh, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. In fact, back in verse 2, you'll note that Martha was, I know this is going to shock you, serving. In John 12 and verse 2, whereas in John 12 and verse 3, Mary is doing what she's doing here. She had a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. 
We have on one account the head, the head is included, but also the feet, and that she is on the ground with her hair, cleaning and washing his feet with this ointment. That's what's happening on this occasion. Now again, I believe why this is so important is because John 13 is the context in John 13 where he rebukes the disciples for not washing each other's feet. That's the very next chapter. And recall in John 13, he says, you're going to follow a man with water. And so that water was going to be there the whole time. Jesus arrives after them, and none of the disciples have been willing to wash each other's feet. That's John 13. In fact, go with me to John 13, go down to verse 14. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. I do not think it's a coincidence that this in various contexts, this woman has been willing to, to, to get down before Jesus and wash his feet. She is willing to serve God, to serve the Christ. And so in Mark, go back to Mark chapter 14, you have here a woman, certainly they had the opportunity to help the poor, but that opportunity was going to be there the next day also. She was not always going to have the opportunity to wash his feet, and she has taken this opportunity. They've accused her of a missed opportunity. But just Jesus reveals the fact that it was not a missed opportunity. She took the opportunity, in fact, to serve God, to serve the Savior. Back in Mark chapter 14 and verse 9. Mark 14 and verse 9. Very last saying to you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached, the gospel of his death and burial, by the way, shall be preached throughout the whole world. This also, what she hath done, shall be spoken of for a memorial for her. And in fact, how true is that, that three out of the four gospel accounts include this story. The whole passage is about Jesus and his interaction with his disciples, and yet three out of the four accounts, with the exception of Luke, include what she did here. That's what Jesus said is going to happen. It's going to be included within this story, what she did. Because contrary to what they thought, it was not a missed opportunity. Contrary to what they thought also, they had missed an opportunity. What you have here an example of where the disciples miss an opportunity to serve God. Those are children of God missing a very important opportunity. Go down to Mark 14 and verse 32. They had missed an opportunity to serve God. I want you to another, note another missed opportunity in Mark 14. Go down to verse 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to the disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thou wilt. In verse 37, he cometh and findeth them sleeping. Luke's account says they're sleeping for sorrow. Yes, they're tired. Yes, it's late. In, 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 they're early in the morning at this point. All these events are taking place at night now. But Luke's account says they slept for sorrow. They just couldn't accept what was about to happen. It says, and he says unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Could you have not watched and, he says in verse 38, prayed for one hour? What Jesus has just identified is you missed an opportunity. You missed an opportunity to prepare yourself for what's to come, and you missed an opportunity to pray about what's to come. Now this happens two more times. These are missed opportunities of children of God to prepare themselves for what's coming and to pray unto God the Father. And but instead they sleep. I love Mark's account in verse 40 because he adds some information to this in verse 40 when Jesus comes back. 
And, he, and when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. Mark's account includes the fact that they, when he comes back and says, why couldn't you pray? They didn't know what to say because there was no legitimate excuse. If they had said, oh, we were tired, well, you're no more tired than Jesus is. If they had said, oh, we had, we've already finished, we couldn't think of anything else to pray for, you couldn't think of anything else to pray for? There's no excuse. And he comes back to them, and, he's, and they didn't know how to respond. You got us, yes. We miss an opportunity to watch and pray. That was their response in Mark 14 and 40. You have here an example of where they missed an opportunity to pray. And all the excuses they could come up with, none of them are legitimate. You missed an opportunity to pray. That's what he says to these children of God. Go with me to Mark chapter 14 and verse 66. Mark 14 and verse 66. So you have seen a, a missed opportunity to serve God, a missed opportunity to pray and to prepare yourself for things to come. We also have another missed opportunity in Mark 14 and verse 66. I want to know in verse 66, And as Peter was beneath in the palace, there cometh one of the maids of the high priest. Now I want to pause here for a moment so that we don't miss what's being described here. This young lady is called a maid or a maid servant, a servant of the high priest. If you'll mark Mark 14, I want you to go to the book of Exodus with me and I want to note what we have here. Go with me to the book of Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. This woman being a maid, that would of course make her a female. So the description here is of a young lady who is a servant of the high priest. In Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 13, Exodus 40, beginning verse 13, Thou shalt put upon Aaron the holy garments, and anoint him, and sanctify him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt bring his sons, and clothe them with coats. And thou shalt anoint them, the sons, as thou didst anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. You see this continuing, that those who are going to be serving in the service of the sanctuary, the service of the tabernacle, followed by the service of the temple, were going to be sons. And in fact, sons of Levi, these were going to be men who would serve in this capacity. So I know this, and I have to combine that with Mark 14. I want you to go with me to the book of Numbers, and I want you to note some things that start happening after this commandment. Go with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 31. Numbers, chapter 31. The service of the priests were given to the sons of Levi. In Numbers chapter 31, something that begins to happen, look with me in verse 30. And in Numbers 31, the context, though we're not going to get into it in great depth, is the defeat of the Midianites. They're going, they have defeated the Midianites. And in verse 30, the children of Israel's half shalt thou take one portion, a portion from the Midianites, of 50, of the persons. Now he goes into flocks and animals and things like that, but also he says you, what you're going to do is you're going to take a portion of the Midianite people and those Midianite people were going to be, as you continue in that, given unto the Levites, which keep the charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. The Levites do. But you see in this Numbers 31, you have an example of where a defeated nation, they were to take cattle and all that, but also people, and some of those were to be given to the Levites as servants. In fact, go with me to Joshua chapter 9. It happens again. Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9, and go with me down to verse 26. Joshua 9, verse 26. And this context here is the defeat of the Gibeonites. The defeat of the Gibeonites and what was to be done. In verse 26, 
And so did he unto them, and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel, that they slew them not. And Joshua made them that day, that is, those Gibeonites who were not defeated, hewers of wood and drawers of water. That is, they were to make things, they were craftsmen, as well as going to wells and bringing water back for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, even unto this day in the place which he should choose. There's a description of servants. Now, in this context, you have servants of those who are working in the tabernacle. All they could do, though, was make things outside of the sanctuary and tabernacle and bring water to those who would actually serve in the tabernacle for the purpose, for example, of putting out a, a fire on the altar for the next one. That was a service they did, but they were outside of the tabernacle. They weren't Levites. They weren't priests. They were just servants. Well, that would be bringing these things. Go with me to the book of Ezekiel. Now, what... Israel always did was they took something that was authorized and they abused it. So I want you to note what they started to do with this system, Ezekiel 44. You can well imagine that as they started to develop these servants who could do those type of what they would refer to as medial tasks, that they would start thinking, well, they could also do this task and they could also do this task. And it would start to make them lazy and they'd start dumping responsibilities on these servants who had no business doing that service. And they're going to be rebuked for this. Ezekiel 44, go with me to verse 6. Ezekiel 44, beginning in verse 6. Thou shalt say to the rebellious, even to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, O ye house of Israel, let it suffice you of all your abominations. He's going to list some of them here. You have brought into my sanctuary strangers, outsiders, uncircumcised in heart, and uncircumcised in flesh, non-Jews to be in my sanctuary, to pollute it, even my house, when ye offer my bread, the fat and the blood. They have broken my covenant because of all your abominations. And ye have not kept the charge of mine holy things, but ye have set keepers of my charge of my sanctuary for yourselves. In other words, instead of taking who I told you to serve in the sanctuary, you've chosen people yourself. And those people you've chosen are unauthorized to do the work that they're doing. They were not supposed to be doing the work of the sanctuary. And so what happens, beginning in verse 9, is they're rebuked for this. Thus saith the Lord God, No stranger, uncircumcised in heart, nor uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter into my sanctuary of any stranger that is among the children of Israel. And the Levites that are gone away far from me, because the Levites were supposed to be doing this, but instead they put these servants in charge, and the Levites weren't doing their responsibilities anymore. They were far from him. It says in verse 11, Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary. He says, I want to remind you who's supposed to be doing the work in the sanctuary. The Levites were. So I want you to go back to, me to Mark now. And so when we read in Mark chapter 14 that there is a servant of a high priest, we can rest assured that the servant of this high priest is number one, she is not herself a priest. Was not authorized. We can know number two, she was also not serving in the sanctuary. We know this. So back in Mark 14 and verse 66, when it says Peter was beneath in the palace, I can back up to verse 53 and know what type of servant she was in verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and Peter followed him afar off, even unto the palace of the high priest. She was not a servant of the temple. She was a servant of the high priest at his own palace. That's going to come to play in a moment. And I, that's why I bring it up. It's going to come to play in a moment. But she is a servant in particular of the high priest in his own palace. Not a service, a service in the sanctuary of God that would have been unauthorized. 
you have her who is a servant of the priest. Go down to verse six, uh, um, Go down to verse sixty-seven now. Go down to verse sixty-seven. And when she, that servant of the high priest, saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, And thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied, saying, I know not, neither under I stand what thou sayest. And he went out into the porch, and the cock crew. Now what you have in verse 67 is, this servant of the high priest, just a personal housemaid of this man Caiaphas, who is the high priest, who comes out to him and says, I think you were with Jesus. There's two reasons she could have asked this. One reason she could have asked this is because she wanted to turn him in. If you are with Jesus, I'm going to tell my master about it and I'm going to turn you in. That's one possible reason she could have asked that question. I think our gut is naturally pulled in that direction because of Peter's response. As soon as Peter hears it, he says, no, no, I'm not with him. Because sometimes we think out of fear, Peter's responding because he didn't want to get caught. And so for that reason, I think our mind is naturally drawn to she's saying that so she can turn Peter in and actually get him in trouble. But the second possible scenario wherein she might be asking this question is because she's interested in finding out more about this Jesus of Nazareth. That's one possibility. One possibility is, if you're someone who's around Jesus, tell me more about this Jesus of Nazareth. That's another possibility for why she might be asking this. Now, if you go back to Mark 14 and verse 27, regardless of why she's asking it, this is something we do know for a fact. In Mark 14 and verse 27. Jesus saith unto him, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, shall be offended. Look in verse 30. Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. What we do know concretely is Peter's response was unacceptable. Regardless of what her reason for asking was, Peter responded unacceptably. And what I, I think you have in Mark 14 for Peter was a missed opportunity. In this case, a missed opportunity to acknowledge and confess publicly, yes, I'm with that man. Also, possibly a missed opportunity to give her more information about Jesus of Nazareth so that she also might come to the conclusion that, yes, this is the Son of God. It was a missed opportunity for Peter to open his mouth and talk about Jesus. I want you to go with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Go with me to verse 24. John 18 and verse 24. It is my contention, again, it doesn't really matter because Peter's response was incorrect either way, but I think this woman was probably, this young lady was probably asking more out of interest. That's the conclusion I've reached because of the way the other servants and, and their background and why they're asking. So go with me to John 18 and verse 24. Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said therefore unto him, Art, th- art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. Now here's the final servant that asked. One of these servants of the high priest. This, uh, this one is a, another servant of the high priest. They are in the palace. And so of course he, the, the palace is surrounded by servants. Those who would be working for the high priest in his own palace. Being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off. Now sometimes we do not realize this is the last one who asked him the question. A kinsman of Malchus. Back up to verse 10. Go back to verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant. That means Malchus was a a servant of the high priest. 
not in the sanctuary because he'd been sent by the high priest to go collect Jesus with other servants. Amongst those was a servant of the high priest named Malchus. He cut off his right ear. Peter cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus, the servant of the high priest. So what you have in John 18 and verse 26, 26 is a relative of Malchus. That is notable because that means I can well imagine Malchus has come back from having captured him and has probably the first thing he's going to do is come back and tell them about what? There was a man who cut my ear off. There was another man, however, who put it back on. Don't you know that's the first story he came back and told them? And don't you know he probably told his family first? This man comes and says, as a family member of Malchus, I'm pretty confident you were with Jesus. Not only do we know that, but it also says in verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, who ears Peter cut off, saith, did, did not I see thee in the garden with him? Did not I see thee? Meaning, that servant was there in the garden as well. So not only does he have the account of his kinsman, whose ear was cut off, but also whose ear was put back on, he also witnessed all of the events that happened when they came to take Jesus. So I want you back with me to John 18 and see some of the things that this man witnessed. Look at what he witnessed, John 18 and verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. He asked, who, who are you looking for? Jesus answered him, I am. I'm he. I'm the one you're looking for. What next? What's next? Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon as then, as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. They might have even included this servant, but he at least witnessed this. They come out to Jesus with this mob. They have all these people with torches and lanterns, but also with weapons, the Bible says. They come out to him to take him, and they ask, he asks who you're looking for. When Jesus says, I am, they fall backwards to the ground. He could have been one who fallen, but at least one who witnessed it. He saw that. He also witnessed how Jesus responded when the mob came out to him. He didn't fight. In fact, he did the opposite when Peter tried to. He witnessed that. And so I, I believe my gut reaction to that information is he wanted probably to find out more about this Jesus, the one who they fell to the ground over, the one who was able to heal his, his relative's ear, put it back on his body and heal him. It is my contention they wanted to find out more about him, not turn him in, but probably find out more about this Jesus of Nazareth. Who is this man? In verse 27, Peter then denied again and immediately caught crew. This is a missed opportunity for Peter. What you probably have here are at least two, maybe more servants of the high priest who wanted to find out about Jesus. And instead, Peter cowered. He did not give that response. He missed an opportunity to open his mouth and talk about Jesus. I know that oftentimes we like to describe this as fear, that, what, that, that Peter responds in fear here. I want you to go with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I'm not convinced that this was necessarily entirely fear. Of course, he may have had some fear. Certainly, Peter did in this situation. But I don't know that fear was always, particularly fear, immediate fear, was always Peter's problem. I don't think that was his biggest problem. In Luke chapter 22, go with me in Luke 22 uh, down to verse 50. Luke 22 and verse 50. And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. I love that he says one of them. We know from the other accounts it's Peter. Peter was the one who did this. That is an act, by the way, not of fear. 
He is not afraid. In fact, he has this huge multitude with weapons. And Peter says, with a, a short knife, if you look that word up, with a very short knife, apparently has under the impression he's going to take this whole mob himself. That's not really an act of fear out of this man. It says, he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders, which were come to him, be ye come out as against a thief with swords and with staves? Have you come out to me in that way? That's not necessary. It's not needed for me. That's not what's necessary. I want you to go with me now to, back to John, the book of John. I'm sorry, go back to the book of Mark. Go with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And in Mark chapter 8, go with me to verse 31. I do not think Peter's major problem here was fear. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected the elders of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly and Peter took him and began to rebuke him again. Mary admitted what and acknowledged what Peter was not willing to. But when he turned and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. As you continue this context, I want you to note what Jesus' words sum up with after this interaction in verse 38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words. I don't think Peter's major problem was fear. I think Peter's major problem was shame. He was ashamed. In that instance, the man who he had just devoted three years of his life to, serving, following, listening to, telling other people about, acknowledging before people, was now the very man who was in front of the leaders of his people, in front of the high priest himself, and was, going, was in prison and going to be put to death. I think maybe it was shame at this moment that got to Peter. I think he was possibly ashamed of Jesus, and Jesus is trying to prepare him for that fact that he should not be ashamed of Jesus. Go back then to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Not only that, because we have seen that in Mark 14, Peter followed him all the way to the palace of the high priest. And if we did not have the book of John, we would have we thought he was alone. But John also includes the fact that John also went with him. Peter and John, of all the apostles, were the only ones who left that garden where he was betrayed and went all the way. They followed as far as they could. They couldn't have followed. It wouldn't have been allowed for them to follow all the way up to the high priest. Their soldiers there, their servants of the high priest, they would have prevented it. He literally followed him as far as he could. If he was afraid, I don't think he would have gone that whole way and put himself in that situation. But I think in the end, what caused him to miss this opportunity was shame. He was ashamed of what was happening in front of him. And that caused him to miss his opportunity. What you have there is a missed opportunity to speak. As I look back, I was talking with Jenny yesterday that I, I try myself personally not to wait until January the 1st to change things that I need to change in my life. If I know I need to change something in, in, in December, I try to change it in December. That's just the philosophy I have taken. However, I think it is important for us sometimes to reflect back on what's happened in 2020. And upon reflecting back at 2020, I have to acknowledge as a child of God that I missed opportunities. That I miss opportunities. I miss opportunities to pray. I miss opportunities to prepare myself for things to come. I miss opportunities to open my mouth and tell people about Jesus Christ. I missed very important opportunities. And I miss opportunities to serve God. 
And as you look back into last year, I want to ask you to ask yourself those very questions. Have you yourself missed opportunities as a child of God to do any number of those things? Have you missed opportunities in 2020 to serve God? Have you missed opportunities in 2020 to pray because maybe you thought you were too tired to pray? Have you missed opportunities to open your mouth and talk to someone that you work with or talk to someone that you come in contact with? Have you missed opportunities in 2020? That's a reflection we all have to look back at. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I want to add to that information the fact we cannot give the excuse that I missed an opportunity because I didn't know how hard it was going to be. We can't give that as an excuse. If I missed an opportunity to do what was right, I missed it because I didn't take the opportunity. Not because I didn't know how hard this was going to be. 1 Corinthians 16, go with me to verse 8. 1 Corinthians 16, beginning verse 8. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is open unto me. An opportunity, Paul says. And he says, there are many adversaries. So Paul, in the very same breath, where he says, I have an opportunity, he also says, it's not going to be easy. There are going to be people who try to oppose my doing these things. And Paul says, I know it even before I go through that door and take that opportunity. That cannot be the reason we miss an opportunity to do good because it's going to be hard. Paul says, we know it's going to be hard. We know there's going to be those who oppose us doing good. We know that before the opportunity even arises. We ought to prepare ourselves. It goes on and says in verse 10, let no, uh, sorry, in verse 10, now if Timotheus comes, see that he may be with you without what? Without fear. Timothy, as we've talked about before in the book of Timothy, had a tendency also to be afraid when he shouldn't. And what Paul says is, there's an opportunity for Timothy. He's going to come to you. There's going to be those who withstand him and let it not be you. Let you not be the reason why Timothy's afraid to do what he, he should be doing, the good work that he's be, to be doing. And so if I miss an opportunity last year, it's because I didn't take it, period. There's no excuse for it. I just didn't take the opportunity. And I have to commit myself to not allowing that to happen again. I don't want that to happen again. In fact, go me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. When you look into the Greek in Ephesians chapter 5, and in fact, some translations have translated it this way, but it look, if you look in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, Ephesians 5 and verse 14, it says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. To redeem is to buy back, but when you look up that redeeming the time, the idea is, to no longer miss opportunities, or in other words, to take back missed opportunities. To take back missed opportunities. That's what Paul is saying. We may look back and understand we missed some opportunities, but now what we ought to do as Christians is look forward and, 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 and from here on out decide, I'm not going to miss those opportunities, I'm going to take them back. I'm going to take that time back, I'm going to take those opportunities back and not miss it again. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And go with me to verse 2. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2. Oftentimes we will quote this verse, and in this verse we will credit the fact of being instant in season and out season to preaching only. 
That's not what the verse says. It's not excluded, it's included, but it's not the only sense to which Paul is saying this in verse 2. He says in verse 2, preach the word. The next statement is a separate statement. Be instant. He doesn't say preach instant. He says be instant. In season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. It's more than just being ready to preach. That's included. But he says you need to be ready anytime. Be prepared. Be ready. Redeem your time. Be ready for that opportunity. The next time you see an opportunity, recognize it and be ready to act on it in 2021. That's what we're talking about. Redeeming the time, taking it back. Go with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This is why I think it's interesting or important to fully grasp what's going on to understand these are the servants of the high, the personal servants of the high priest, not the servants, in fact, of the temple itself. Because in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, go with me in Acts chapter 4 to verse 5. Acts 4 and verse 5. And it came to pass on the morrow of their rulers and elders and scribes, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest we were just studying about in Mark chapter 14. So you have the same characters here. You have Caiaphas and you have Peter. We know what happened last time. What happened last time was Peter was discouraged and ashamed and was not willing to take the opportunity to open his mouth and say something. But Peter's saying, not this time. I'm going to redeem that opportunity back. I'm going to take it back. I missed it last time, but not this time. And Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, as many as were the kindred of the high priest, that's the family members of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power, by what name have you done this? Isn't that exact same question he was asked last time amongst the servants and the family of the high priest? When Peter says, I don't know the man, they ask, whose authority and in whose name do you do these things? Peter in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if ye this day be examined the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel. Peter says, Not this time. I'm not going to miss this opportunity that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. Peter says, I missed the opportunity, not this time. I have that opportunity again, and I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to buy it back. That's God's long-suffering. That's God's patience with us. That's God giving us another opportunity. Our scripture reading in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 is, as we have opportunity to do good, Galatians 6 and verse 10, just do it. When you have the opportunity. And verse 9 says, don't grow tired or weary of doing good. Don't think to yourself, oh, I did it last time. That's not an excuse either. This morning I want to challenge each one of us. There are opportunities before all of us. There are opportunities this morning for those who are not Christians. The opportunity this morning, if you're not a Christian, is to obey the gospel. Please do not be like King Herod Agrippa who said, Almost thou persuadest me this morning to become a Christian. If you're here this morning and you believe that Jesus is Son of God, that very thing that we were studying this morning, that we are willing to repent of our sins, those sins that have separated us from God, that we are willing to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, we can take you this very hour and baptize you into Jesus Christ, Galatians 3, verse 27, for, for our sins to be washed away, Acts 22, 
in verse 16, Acts 2, in verse 38, to put on Jesus Christ, clothe us with Christ, Galatians 3, verse 27, being baptized into his death, Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. Don't miss that opportunity this morning. There is that opportunity, and don't almost make the decision to have those past sins washed away. It is, as we saw in Bible class this morning, in Titus chapter 3, and verse 5, a regeneration. A generation is a birth. We're talking about a rebirth this morning. A spiritual regeneration. Rebirth is being born again, John 3, verses 3 through 5. And that time is now. Don't miss that opportunity. If you're here this morning, you are a Christian, please reflect back. I can't do it for you. I can only do it for me. And I was ashamed just reflecting back on my own life as I prepared this lesson. Think back yourself last year at the missed opportunities and commit this very morning to not missing those again. God will give you another opportunity because that's the God that we serve. Don't miss that opportunity. Well, the case might be make it known as we stand, as we sing.